0: Well, good morning. If you're, uh, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us. I'm going to dismantle every single hope you have in the things that you're working on. That's why we're here. I just, just, you know, the ministry of disappointment. That's what God has given to me. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bible if you, if you got it. If you don't, uh, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and go ahead and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. As you're turning... Uh, it is sanctity of life sunday which i will pray for here in just a minute sanctity of life sunday is something that for us as a church is very very important we confess that life is precious every single person is made in the image of god and gains their dignity and worth because of being made in god's image not because of what they contribute to society of how effective they are at what they do Uh, But that every single person God has knit together in the womb of their mother so that we believe that uh, life begins at conception in the womb and that every life from the womb to all the way the end of life issues that you may deal with, every single life is precious. Every single life is worthy of being protected and valued because that's what we believe God has spoken to us in his word. So we take the position of the almighty creator of the universe. Uh, on that issue when it comes to life, so uh, we as a church partner with uh, the pregnancy resource clinic called das in our uh, in our locality, and pray for, and many of you uh, probably have attended that banquet in the past and give toward um, uh, issues of life in our city, and that's very, very important to us. So I'm going to pray for that, uh, for that clinic, and many of you who are involved in that ministry in our city of preserving life and valuing life in the womb, and all the way to, in terms of issues, uh, this doesn't get often brought up in the context of Sanctity of Life Sunday. Often it becomes an unborn issue. But it also applies to end-of-life issues, where some of you who bury parents and deal with some of those final years Uh, of their lives, you are also taking a stand that life is precious up until the point where God brings them home. So that that is also an important thing for us to say as a church, that we don't discard uh, the elderly. We don't believe that the wisdom of God falls just upon the youth of our day, but that the gray head is to be honored, that the aged individuals among us in our congregation, you can interpret that however you would like to, are of great worth and great value and great dignity because God has conferred dignity upon them. Amen? Okay, so we believe that. We believe that that's what God has shown us in his word. So if you would pray for me, uh, pray for you, pray for me whenever you want to. Go ahead, do that. I'm gonna pray for this particular issue for us, that this would be something that for us we give time to and mark out. Because listen, we have the truth of God in our hands when it comes to this issue. I talked to you about this issue last week when it came to ethnic harmony in the context of a culture that is massively disunified. But we also have the word of God in our hands when we deal with issues like this, right? Amen? So we have God's thoughts on these prickly issues that happen in our culture. And that's what we hold to. That's what we believe in. We believe that God has spoken on these issues. He hasn't left us alone to figure them out on our own but that he speaks into issues of great consequence in our culture. All right, so let's pray for these things. Father, we pray that we would be a congregation that continues to lift up the value of life as spoken to us in your word. That every single person, regardless of their background, regardless of their age, has worth because they are made in the image of God himself. So with that truth, uh, guard our decision-making? Would it form our thinking? Would we care and love those who are the most vulnerable among us in our families and in our relationships and even in our city, that we would be a congregation that stands for life and comes alongside those individuals who feel like nobody knows them, nobody knows where they are or what they're going through? That you would give us a courage in our day and in our time to stand uh, for issues of truth and of life. And as we prayed for last week, Father, issues of justice and righteousness, that you would form us through your word to be men and women of courage who stand on what is true, that you, we would please you with our lives that we would speak up for the unborn, that we would speak up for the abused, that we would speak up for those who experience injustice, and that we would honor you with our words and our deeds, confessing that all people are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect and honor, because that is how you have made them, that they are the thumbprint of your divinity. So, Father, bless us in these pursuits. In Christ's name, amen. All right, take a look here. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I hope you were encouraged last week as we ended confessing that life has a scarcity to it and a brokenness to it and a crookedness to it uh, that we can't fix. That life is life. Life is loaded and it comes uh, pre bent and crooked in a way that uh, no amount of wisdom. Uh, is able to untangle it for humans. We need a voice from beyond the sun, outside of the world to give meaning to where we are. Now, if you remember in Ecclesiastes chapter one, he started asking this question. Look at it, if you've got got Ecclesiastes one open, did you find it? Right in the middle, you can't spell it, but hopefully you can find it. Uh, Ecclesiastes one verse two was this question that Solomon began with, or actually his confession. He said, vanity of vanity, said the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the key question that Ecclesiastes is trying to expose for you and I. That Solomon recognizes that there's a subterranean ambition in your heart that you don't like to talk about, that you don't really broadcast in front of people. But that you have an ambition. I have an ambition in my heart that when I encounter relationships or my vocation or the plans and desires that I have for my life, that there's this unwritten code that I live by that presumes I am going to gain by this encounter. So we ended last week looking at Ecclesiastes 1 verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. And Solomon illustrated for us in creation, that creation never gains. The sun rises, the sun sets. The generation goes, a generation comes. The wind goes around to the north and back to the south and around to the north again. That the water cycle is always evaporation, condensation, precipitation. And nothing gains. It all continues since the beginning of creation. It's all wired like that. Well, if you I mean, if you didn't learn, if you learned that lesson in chapter one, you could close this book, right? And you go, you've a really short book with Ecclesiastes because all you got to do is look at nature and gain that lesson. But we don't believe Solomon, really. That you have lived lives this week where you have encountered life not going your way and you're frustrated because the unspoken ambition in your heart is that you ought to have experienced and found gain. And what Solomon is going to do in chapter 2 here for us is take you and I on a journey. He's going to mention his heart 13 different times over the course of our time here this morning. There's nobody in your life that talks to you more than you. You have a stream of consciousness that exists in your life about the things that you plan, the things that you dream about, the things that at work you have an ambition to accomplish or the dreams and desires that you have for your degree. That you're looking at how you ended this year and did you end this year ahead of where you ended 2020 or 21 or 22 and the years will come and you continue to have an unspoken agenda, don't you? And what Solomon is going to do is give you this stream of consciousness that you have and that I have. And what he's going to do is open up his heart and his mind so that you can see Solomon evaluate his stream of conscious thinking. This is why I love Ecclesiastes in this way, because it's just so honest about life. It's one of the reasons I love the poetic literature of Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, is that these books get us... They understand us. They put into words things that you just feel or ambitions that in your heart that you don't really want to say out loud. And here in the poetic literature, Solomon is going to expose all of us. He's going to lay us all open. And, and as the prototype human, he's going to say, here is my agenda. Here is my plan to figure out if I can find gain under the sun. And where he's going to land is such a fascinating place. In fact, the place that he's going to land after all of his searching is a place that is distinctly Christian. And I'll show you why. So let's pray here for God's word to take root in our hearts here. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that Solomon has gone ahead of us in so many ways in this chapter. And we give thanks that for the few minutes that we gather around your word, that you can give us clarity that we can't find anywhere else. That we are often deceived, we're often in despair, we're often discouraged by what we see in our lives, or what we see in our culture, what we see in our family, or our vocations, or our schooling... And Father, for the few minutes, you can blow away the fog of that uncertainty and lack of clarity, and you can speak from your perspective into our lives. You can say things that we need to hear that can reorient our affections and our plans, that can reorient our ambitions and the desires that so often just run rampant through our lives. Father, you can do things with a word that takes us decades You can do things in moments to show us who we are and to turn our hearts to you. So I pray that you would do that in the few minutes that we look into your word here together. That for those who come in confused, that for those who come in who are frustrated and are looking to get out of life something that life never promised, I pray that you would give great hope and great joy to them here this morning. That you would show us yourself through your word. That the wonder and the grace of Jesus would be seen. And that you would speak and encourage and edify and and ultimately demonstrate your love to us through your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, now let's take a look here. Let's, Let's watch how Solomon is going to work through some of his own personal experience. Look at, we're going to begin at the end Of chapter one. We're going to look at verse 16 and go all the way through chapter two. So put on your seatbelt. You got a lot to do. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 16. Watch where Solomon starts. He's looked at creation. Now he's going to look at his experience. Verse 16 says this I said, in my heart. He's going to take his inner monologue, his inner dialogue, and he's going to start to think about the pursuits of his life. And we said this last week that he's going to push. Into all of the pursuits of life and begin to examine can I find gain here? Can I find gain here? Can I find gain here? And the place he's gonna start is somewhat of an interesting one. He starts with wisdom. What do you think? Can human wisdom provide me gain with life under the sun? I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, let me show you this. I mentioned this last week. Keep your finger here in Ecclesiastes 1. Turn back to 1 Kings 4. 1 Kings 4. 1 Kings 4 shows you uh, Solomon at his height, we said that Solomon lived at a time when uh, he was at the crossroads of great financial wealth and prosperity. Israel became the place of uh, uh, great travel and commerce and trade that moved from Egypt up to Assyria in the north. First Kings chapter four. If you just take a look here at verse 29. 1 Kings 4, verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. You see that? All the way in the east, all the way in the west. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. You know him, right? He-man, that's where he-man came from, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Uh, One of those guys wrote psalms. You know that? Ethan the Ezraite, he wrote some psalms. Verse 32, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of the beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now, would you agree that when it comes to wisdom, Solomon is at the top of his game? That he is the individual that everybody in his surrounding circles would look to as giving insight on everything from arts to the sciences? And you would think that as God intentionally answered the prayer of Solomon that Solomon's wisdom, turn back to Ecclesiastes 1. Actually, keep your finger there. If you've got, you got a ribbon in your Bible, put it there in 1 Kings 4. We'll come back to that. But go back to Ecclesiastes. You would think that God would give Solomon wisdom and then allow Solomon's wisdom to put him in a situation where he's like, you know, Confucius, or he's a little bit zen about life right, that he can transcend the troubles of life through the wisdom that God has given him. But if you know the story of Solomon, Solomon ends his life badly. The kingdom is fractured. That he doesn't have a good reputation among the people who worked for him. That Solomon's morality ends up being corrupted by the end of his life. And what Solomon shows us here in Ecclesiastes 1 is that human wisdom can't allow me to transcend life. All of what we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the scarcity and the crookedness of life, human wisdom can't allow you to transcend it. Isn't that frustrating? Look at what he says. Verse 17, I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I will take the path of the sage and I will take the path of the fool and I will try to find out if life really can be found through the wisdom that I exert upon my circumstances. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. Verse 17, uh, 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. You know what I mean? What vexation is? Anger. Displeasure—that Solomon's inner mentality, having the very wisdom of God as he looks out upon life, is frustrated. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, the longer you live, typically the more wisdom you acquire. Right? That you've have you learned some lessons. People who are 50, have you learned some lessons that you wish you knew at 20? No? Okay, good. People who are 70, have you learned some lessons that you wish you would have known when you were 50? Right? That that's a part of it. But what human wisdom does for us is it doesn't allow us to truly understand the crookedness of life. It just gives us clarity on the crookedness, doesn't it? That you are able to pick out a fool quicker than somebody else. But can you fix the foolishness? No, you just, you just get grumpy. Because now through your wisdom and through your experience, you start to see that life is bent and life is crooked and that human wisdom that you've acquired over decades of life doesn't ultimately get you gain. This is Solomon's point. He's got the most amount of wisdom of any individual that has ever preceded him that will ever follow him. And he goes, I can just see the brokenness better and it just makes me frustrated. I can't transcend life under the sun. I'm just frustrated by it. Now, wisdom, frustrating, vexed. I'm vexed. Verse two, look at at chapter two, verse one. I said in my heart, let's move from wisdom. Maybe wisdom isn't the answer. Let's try something else. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I love that this is actually a valid pursuit for Solomon. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But Solomon says, let's binge watch Netflix Let's look at some cat videos. Let's listen to some comedians. Let's spend some time doing the things that I love to do. What do the teenagers play now? In my day, they played Halo. I had roommates that played Halo until they fell asleep and then they'd get up and they'd put the headset on again and they'd go for more Halo. I don't know, what's the new one now? What do they do now? Like you've never heard of video games. It's still halo? (laughs) It's still halo. Man, I said of laughter, verse two, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? What's the point? What am I gonna do with all of this pleasure and all of this enjoyment? Let's forget that. Let's forget mental pursuits, joy and pleasure pursuits. Let's try substances. Look at verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of life. Go back to First Kings 4. Flip back. Look at the beginning of the chapter. I'm sorry, verse 20. 1 Kings 4 verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. They had the best of the best. Do you think Solomon as the king had good wine? I'll bet you he had the best wine. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. The next paragraph talks about how good he ate. He had the best of the best. He had the best filet mignon. He had the best wine. He smoked the best cigars. He had the best. Go back to Ecclesiastes. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with mine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He said, I lived it up. My heart of wisdom never left me, which means he didn't give himself over to excess. He examined it. He said, is having the best scotch and the best cigars and the best meat and the best wine and the best food that you can get, can I find gain there? What about mankind in the few days that they have? Should they just eat and drink and find gain that way? No, you can't do that. Now, through enjoying life, maybe through mental or physical pursuits, That feels a little lowbrow, doesn't it? But what about turning to work? Shouldn't you want to make something of your life? Don't you feel like these are kind of pursuits of the freshmen and the sophomores? But now it's junior year and you better start getting good grades because you need that internship. And you've got to graduate and you've got to get that good job. You've got to make sure that you have a good reputation and can get the reference letters so that you can start making something of your life, right? Well, that's where Solomon goes next. He says, I can't find gain with wisdom. I can't find gain with pleasure. I can't find gain with the things that I eat and I drink. I know I will make something of my life through my career. See, maybe my real problem is my lack of ambition that I should make an impact on this world. Watch this. Verse four I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. He tried real estate, he built homes, he did some good landscaping, he put in a fountain. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted them, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I put all these trees in, now I need irrigation. Now I'm good at irrigation too. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I started to amass a workforce in my house. I started to really make something of my life because now I'm the boss and I have employees. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. You see, see that? He's mentioned that twice. Nobody did it like I did it. I had wisdom like nobody else before. I did things in my career nobody had done before. Verse 8 I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and promises. I played the stock market and I did great. I made dividends upon dividends upon dividends. I made money and money and more money. I also gathered for myself I read that. I got singers, both men and women. I got into the arts. And many concubines. I got into pleasure. I let my sexuality explore itself. The delights of the sons of man. Did you see the verbs in the fast few sentences? I made, I built, I made, I made, I bought, I had, I gathered. Me, 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 more accumulation. I accomplished, I grew my business. More and more and more and more. First Kings 10 says this. Let's, let's, let me give you an idea of how well Solomon did economically as a king. First Kings 10 says this. You, it's not in four. I'm sorry, I said four. Don't worry about it. Stay in Ecclesiastes. The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. A talent is about 75 pounds. Gold right now is a little over $1,800 an ounce. $1,800 times 75 times six, you know, 16 times 666. He made well over $100 million a year in today's Anybody making $100 million this year? See? Me either. $100 million a year. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the businesses of merchants and from all the kings of the West and the governors of the land. He was at the top of his game. Verse 9. So I became great. Amen? He became great. And surpassed, for the third time, all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. What an interesting thing to say for Solomon. What an interesting thing to say. If you were, let's be honest with each other. Let's do a little bit of group counseling. Don't you fundamentally believe that the desires that you have ought to be satisfied? Don't raise your hand or you can elbow somebody if you're like, that's you. That's fine. Let's not get too personal though, right? Solomon exposes for us a way of thinking that he models something that I think we really don't want to talk about, but we really want to be. We have a tendency, I have a tendency to think that my life has meaning when I get what I want that my life has purpose and design if I am able to leverage my desires upon my environment and make it work for my benefit. You with me? And Solomon just showed us that he did exactly that. He accomplished every single thing he wanted to accomplish. He didn't deny himself anything. He let his power and his wealth and his acclaim and his wisdom work for him. And he denied himself not one thing. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. See, I think for Solomon and and what he shows us here is that the subterranean desires of our heart are really that we ought to have what we want. You want a good verse to sum up all of advertising and every commercial you ever see? There's not one commercial out there that says, deny yourself what your eyes want. Don't buy our product. You don't need it. It's not going to satisfy anything in you ultimately. But every single advertising campaign affirms that your desires are valid. That you need what we have and all you need to do is exchange that money for our goods and services and your life will finally be the kind of life that you think it ought to be. And Solomon takes that kernel of an idea and runs it all the way out and say the joy that I found the pleasure that I found was in getting the job done, was in doing the work itself. Aren't you glad when you finish mowing the lawn and you look at the lines? And you go, I did that, and I edged it, and the leaves are gone, and I was able to exert my will upon the chaos of creation. I was able to bring order. Now you laugh at that, but don't we do that at work? Don't we fundamentally think that if we have our wisdom and our education that we are able to squash the chaos and bring order and create success and create fulfillment and create meaning and create profit because we believe the ambitions of our hearts aren't deceptive. We believe the desires that we have are desires that ought to be fulfilled. And we take that into our parenting, that if only I was a better parent, my kids would be quiet and obedient and not sinners. And what I need to do is exert my will upon this scenario so that my kids might obey. And what happens is I start to serve this unspoken desire in my heart that I really ought to experience gain so that every encounter at work, every encounter in my family becomes an agenda for me where I expose my heart that really wants to win and wants to gain. You with me? You have that too? Because I have that. Verse 11, and I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, what do you think is coming next? All was vanity. And a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned. Now he's done wisdom. He's done pleasure. And he's done work. And now he's going to turn back to wisdom again. I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Let's look again at this wisdom. Maybe this, I, I did it wrong the first time. Maybe there's something I haven't explored here. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Solomon is not just a wealthy individual. Solomon is not just a king. Solomon is the designated king picked by God to be the ruler over God's people. And Solomon asks a very penetrating question. Did you see what it was? What can man do who comes after the king? What's the answer? Anybody who comes after this man can only live up to the standard that he has established. Nobody can do what Solomon did. Nobody can accomplish what Solomon has accomplished. No one will be as wise as Solomon ever has been. Solomon shows us the kind of life that we dream about for ourselves and he comes back and says, you'll never find it there. You're not going to find satisfaction there. You think you live and your pursuits now betray you. And let me tell you, you won't find it there because I have been to the end and I've come back and I'm telling you it's not there. There's no gain there. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. You can just do what I have done, and you will find the same answer that I have found. Gosh, I wish I could get this into my heart, don't you? Because I live like that is not true all the time. I live like my wisdom and my education and my insight is going to actually produce something that is gain. And Solomon is so frustrating in that way. He understands it. He's been there. But we act and we drive and we plan like we don't believe him. Verse 13. Now Solomon doesn't say uh, wisdom is worthless. He says it's just not ultimate And this is, if you read Proverbs and you you read about the wise, wisdom is said to make a man's face shine. You want to be wise? I don't want to be called a fool, right? I would rather be called, boy, that guy is wise. There's something to him. There's a gravity to him in the things that he knows and experiences and walks through life. He has a wisdom to navigate the circumstances and the currents of life. And what Solomon is going to say here is that wisdom is of comparative value. It's just not of ultimate value. Look at verse 13. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. That's a great compliment. You've got eyes in your head. Like you've got teeth in your mouth. Well done. But the fool walks in darkness. It's good to be wise. Right? It's good to understand, have some understanding about how life works. It's just that wisdom doesn't guarantee you success or gain in life. Why not? Look at what he says next. I perceive the same event happens to all of them, whether wise or foolish. You ever go to a graveyard and ask to yourself, which ones were the wise ones? Which ones were the fools? You have any idea? You have no idea. That's his point. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. You're telling me the wisest person who's ever been lived, who's gifted wisdom from the heavens, is going to die just like the fool. That He's got a grave just like the fool. He's got a headstone just like the fool. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Remember what we saw last week? A generation comes, a generation goes. We forget Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. I don't just hate life. Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. See the the, the words that he's used? Vexation. Sorrow. Sorrow hatred of life not only that I hate my toil which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me I've used this illustration before you ever watch HGTV and you have the people who finally get their forever home I go this is our forever home And I go it's 20 years maybe 25 your kids are going to sell it and buy gummy bears What's he saying? I must leave it to the man who'll come after me. Remember we said last week, godliness with contentment is great gain for we've brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out. You got to write a will. You got to give your inheritance away. You got to divvy it up among your kids. If I die right now, my kids would take that $42 and they would all buy calico critters. They'd all buy Paw Patrol. Why? Because they don't know any better i got to give it. This is the thing that confronts Solomon. Solomon, in this statement, look at verse 19. Who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? What a great question. Solomon isn't just confronted with the loss of his wealth or the loss of his wisdom. He's confronted with the thing that death ultimately takes away, and that's control. I can't control what my kids do with the inheritance, I don't know if they'll be wise or they'll be foolish. I will end my days giving everything away that I have amassed. My wisdom won't benefit me because I'll go into the grave just like the fool. And then all of my money, all of my wealth, all my success, all of my accomplishments, all of my reputation will now be handed to somebody who didn't work for it. Don't that chap your head? You're going to work hard, take your wisdom, take your insight, take your degrees, invest in it, make an impact, grow a practice, grow a business, grow your influence. And then one day they're going to go, well, we got to bury him. let's go have potato salad. And it's all going to be dispersed to your kids who don't appreciate the work that you've put in. We don't know whether they'll be wise or they'll be foolish. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. Don't you feel it? Can't you feel it in that? Ah! Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Sometimes. Sometimes you're going to reach the end of your life and it's all going to go away. And your kids will experience the benefit of your hard work and your wisdom, and your insight. And it'll all fall into their lap, and they won't appreciate it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. See where he ends? He ends in the same place he begins. Sorrow, vexation. With much wisdom comes vexation. With much knowledge comes sorrow. And he ends here in verse 23. All his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. Literally the Hebrew says in the night his heart does not lay down. You ever go to bed thinking about something that you got to do the next day and you sleep bing, and you're up and you got to think about the same thing. Right? It never goes away. There's always more work to do. You leave at the end of the day and you go home and you lay down and you get up and you go, ah, the same problems are there. The same work is there. The same people are there. The same things that I have to get accomplished. There's more work. There's more stuff. And literally, my heart doesn't rest. Psalm 127 says It is vain for you to eat the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Are you discouraged yet? Do you understand why Solomon does this? Do you see how much we need this? We need to be exposed in the ways that we are thinking and planning and dreaming about life. The ways we lie to ourselves. We need to be confronted with the fact that so often we live in such a way that we're planning to find Eden here. We're not planning for the day of our death. We're not planning for the time when everything that I have amassed, all of my wisdom, accomplishments, reputation and esteem and ambition will ultimately be gone. We don't think like that. We're wired, do you hear the echoes of Eden in this passage? The echoes of fruit trees, the echoes of of. Um, The working, the garden. The echoes that Adam made where he he worked it and he kept it and he cultivated it. What is Solomon doing if not trying to create Eden here without God? And he's confronted with death. Now, the answer to this is in the next few verses. And he introduces an idea that he's going to mention seven different times throughout the course of this book. He's going to show us something about God that up to this point has only been a frustration. Remember what we said last week, that God has given an unhappy business to man. And we looked at Romans chapter 8, where it says that God subjected the creation to futility in hope. Look at verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. The temptation you and I have when we read a passage like this, when we're confronted with our desires that seek to make much of our life and meaning and purpose without God, The reaction you would have is, well, Steve, what are you saying? Is it just worthless? We just give up wanting? We just kind of eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die, right? Is that all you're saying my life is? Does my life have no meaning, no purpose? There's no impact I can make? Do we just go to apathy and take more naps? And Solomon takes this thinking and he comes to a conclusion And he says there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Literally, enjoyment there is to look upon the good. And then he explains, how do I find joy in my toil? And the answer is not by wanting less, The answer is not by being apathetic. The answer is understanding your time on earth for what it is. Look at how he continues. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Last week we said God has given to man a miserable business. Here, the second mention of God in this book thus far is that God gives joy. Now, church, do you believe that? Do you live like that? Can you take a look at your work life? Can you take a look at your school life? Can you take a look at the relationships that you have in your life right now? And can you acknowledge that you can have joy from the hand of God? Now, this is a disorienting reality. Do you believe that God has a desire to give you joy in your life? Do you believe that God can speak into the situations of your life and give you a pervasive sense of joy and contentment? Now, I don't know how you view God. Maybe you look at this and you go, God is frustrating because my life isn't working out the way I want it to work. And I have tried to impose my will and my desires upon my circumstances. I've tried to manifest my desires through my good attitude and the hard work that I've given, and I've put in the time. But, Steve, I keep feeling the scarcity of life. I keep feeling the crookedness and brokenness of life. And Solomon now moves from trying to find meaning to talking about morality. Look at what he says This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? What's the answer? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. Nobody can have joy in their life apart from God. Now, I could spend 45 minutes talking about that, but I don't have time to do that. Nobody can have joy apart from God. We only find joy in our lives by being connected to God. Disconnection from God will always result in frustration. Look at the words he's used. Vexation. Sorrow. Hatred. Anger. But if you're connected to God, you can find joy. Verse 26, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and what? Joy. We've already talked about wisdom and knowledge. It began with vexation and sorrow, but wisdom and knowledge connected to God also gives you, starts with J, joy But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. He uses two terms, pleasing God and the sinner. He introduces the idea of morality, which tells us this search that Solomon is on, this under the sun commitment to find meaning and purpose and gain is not just misplaced. It's not just foolish. It's not just an experiment. It's fundamentally sin. This, ver- this word sinner in the context of this chapter is to show us that anytime I try to find meaning and gain disconnected from God in my life, I am wandering into sin. Now, I've already mentioned the garden, but I want to finish here with this really, really big idea. This is the central idea of the Christian faith. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Often, in our search for meaning and purpose and design, the ambition that we have is really an ambition for independence. I really don't want to be connected to God. I really want to be sufficient in and of myself. I want to take my wisdom, my degrees, my success, my hard work, my finances, and I want to order my life to create Eden. Eden to create delight. We may not say that out loud, but the pulsing heart of the sinner is to find life and delight without God. You with me? So we try to find life and delight in our parenting through the ways that we manipulate and create our home to be a place of peace and comfort for us. You ever do that with your kids? where the unspoken desire of your heart is really just to be quiet and leave me alone so that I can have some things that I want to have done. I pursue my ambition at work so that I might amass enough money to make sure that one day I will ultimately be financially what? Independent. I don't have to rely on anybody else. I have enough money to retire. I can go and do the things that I want to do so that finally I can deny my eyes nothing they desire. The pulsing desire in all of our hearts is somehow to get away and find control and peace and delight and purpose and design away from God. What is the temptation in Genesis chapter 3? Listen, listen. Listen. The serpent said to the woman, Genesis 3, 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What has God done in Genesis 1 and 2? Let me just summarize it. God, out of his infinite power, grace, and wisdom, has created a world where we have light for our eyes, air in our lungs, satisfaction for our physical needs. He's created Eden, which means delight. He's done everything that he can possibly do to make sure we have the absolute best and we have God and the delight of his hands. Psalm 16 says, in your hands are pleasures forevermore. And the lie shows up in the garden. The liar shows up in the garden saying, did God say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? It can't be that God wants to limit you. You should be free. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent says, you will not surely, what? Die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The problem in your life are your limitations. See, Solomon has gone to the end and recognized that the limitations ultimately upon him are the fact that one day you will die. He's completely unlimited in anything that he is able to do, except for the fact that one day, the EKG will flatline. One day, there will be no more brainwaves and no more activity. And the central idea of the Christian faith is not that we are left here to accomplish and make something of ourselves so that we might be accepted by God. But the central idea of the Christian faith in Ecclesiastes chapter two is that God freely and of his goodness and of his kindness opens his hand to us and gives us joy. But that's the essence of the idea of Christ on the cross. Is that right? Christ went to the cross to experience the ultimate futility of life. He took the curse upon his brow. He experienced the wrath of God and he lost it all that he might offer us something that Peter calls an inheritance kept in heaven for you, imperishable and undefiled that death cannot touch. And he gives it to you and he gives it to me all as a result of his kindness and goodness and grace so that life can take my ambition. Life can take my impact. Life can take my esteem. Life can take my reputation. Life can ultimately take all of my money, but I will have lost absolutely nothing of what God has given me in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Does that echo in your heart? Does that cause you to look at life under the sun differently, knowing that Christ has given you something that death can never take away from you? So that I can actually look at wisdom and work and relationships and having a good bottle of wine and eating good steak, amen to good steak? Or get the chicken, I don't care. Maybe that's your thing, maybe you like the salmon. You're the three people who get the salmon, I don't know. But we can see it and receive it as a gift from his hand. Trusting that he is good to us and he's kind to us. And that we can receive it from his hand for what it is. In our striving to be independent, often what happens in our relationship with God is we get bitter at our losses. Because we refuse to see what he has given. You with me? So that receive your job as a gift. Receive your kids as a gift. Receive your money as a gift. Hey, get good wine, eat good steak, enjoy yourself. But don't look to it to find meaning. Don't think that when you get your degree, you're going to find meaning. This is what we want our kids to know, isn't it? That at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That Christ is kind and he's died for us and he's given and he's risen from the dead to secure something that death cannot take away. If you've never heard that before, we want to be the place where you experience the goodness and the kindness of God. We want to tell you of the goodness and kindness of Jesus Christ on the cross for you that he has risen from the grave to take away our sin, to reestablish relationship that you might have true, impenetrable, lasting, eternal, everlasting life and joy in a real relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our hope. So I'm going to ask Jared and the band to come. I'm going to pray. We're going to close our time singing of God and of his grace and the resurrection and of what he has done for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. Father, we Thank you for the words of Solomon. We thank you that in these few minutes he exposes the ambitions of our hearts that we so often get deceived by. We thank you that uh, you are a God of joy and of goodness and of kindness. And Father, today might there be people here that experience delight as a result of your kindness to us. Like Solomon says, for apart from you, who can live and work and have joy? Nobody. So we acknowledge, like Jesus said, that the the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But we cling to the promise that Jesus has come and said, I am here that they might have life and life to the full. Father, how good you are. May we learn from this text to be the kind of people that you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen.